dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? We back for 2020. Oh, we back, baby. Ooh, I'm so hyped. Oh man, goodness. I'm I'm wild hype. And I have to get this announcement out the way because I know we got a lot going on. But I do not want to forget that we are currently in the week. You will be hearing this the week of our first PTM event and our first Witness event of the new decade, 2020. We're doing a Pass the Mic Live in H-Town. H-Town was good. Houston, Texas, January 17th at City of Refuge at 6 p.m. You can get your tickets right now, PassTheMicLive.com. You're like, yo, this is crazy. This is a pop-up. Pop up. I, I didn't see it coming. It's, it's <laughs> We didn't intend for you to see it coming. We knew we was going to be in H-Town. You didn't know we were going to be in H-Town. So you grab your friend, grab your cousin, grab your neighbor and them, Grab your church fam and come out to City of Refuge this Friday. By the time you hear this, it'll be this Friday, January 17th. It's going to be wild, Jamar. We got some surprises they don't even know about. We're going to be talking about some things. They're like, what? How are you going? They thought last year was good, man. Look, we get better every week. We find wine. Last year was wild, bro. (laughs) Last year was wild. It was amazing. And people don't even know. Last year was was a big year for us. It was a big year. We want to thank all of our listeners. It was our best year numbers-wise. If you go to uh, Twitter, at underscore past the mic, you can see our top 10 podcasts from the year. It was amazing. Thank each and every one of you for tuning in. Thank you, especially for the folks who have subscribed, who have rated, who have reviewed on iTunes. Y'all are amazing and you keep us going. We love doing this show and it's because of you. So thank you very much. So it's a new decade, but we cannot let the old decade pass without doing one more salvo to 2019, one more parting shot. You know how we do. It's the 2019 Cultural Artifacts. We're doing a little bit later this year, but it's all good. I'm really excited. I'm crazy excited about this list. Jamar, I got some heaters on here. I know you're excited for this list. I am because you're so excited. And longtime listeners know we don't know what it's on, what's on each other's list. So as we're speaking, that's the first time we're hearing it. So you may hear some duplicates, but knowing the mind of Tyler... <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be some stuff that's uh-huh. out of left field that nobody has predicted. So I'm we're coming doing, for y'all this year. Oh I'm my coming goodness. for y'all. I can't wait. We're doing a top nine for 2019. So it's just going to be rapid fire as we get through all of them. Okay. So for those of you who are uninitiated, or maybe if you have forgotten the top nine this year, top nine cultural artifacts episode, it's all about our favorite things from that particular year. So it could be a book, a podcast, um, an event, an album, a comic, uh, a movie, of course, a TV show, a person. It could be anything, but our top nine cultural artifacts. And these are things that have impressed us. But the thing about it is this. It doesn't have to be this thing. A lot of my things did come out in 2019, but it doesn't have to come out in 2019. You just had to have consumed it in 2019. Um, obviously, that's a huge loophole. So but you got a book <laughs> from 1968. You know, you can you can put that on the list, okay? Or a show from two thousand one, you can put that on the list. It's just about what you've consumed, not about what came out, okay? Bet. So Jamar, I'm gonna tee you up, Ali. You okay? Number one, 
Now, is this in no particular order? I got, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I got nine things. I think there's about four of these I look at, and I'm like, four of these could be number one if I was really ranking them like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's how that's how that's how nuts it is it this year. I think. Year. Okay, so I'm gonna give you. It was crazy. Okay, so your first. Okay, one. Um, so I go for the low hanging fruit, the obvious ones. Tyler gives you all the. Oh man, I didn't think about that one. So I'm just. It's just predictable like that. All right. Again, in no particular order, the Netflix documentary series "When They See Us." Bro, that was going to be the first one I mentioned to. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> man. Come on, talk about it, man. We got to talk so about it. the way I approached this whole list was, what are those cultural artifacts that just created ripples and waves and started a conversation, um, whether that's like within sort of Christian circles or beyond? And I think when they see us is a quintessential example of something just causing waves. This documentary was a boulder thrown into the pond of our nation's psyche. Mm -hmm. And what it revealed so poignantly was the injustice of the criminal justice system. Of course, when they see us as a documentary about the Central Park Five, now the exonerated five, and even that phrasing is a result partially of this film uh, coming out and being made so public. So um, these are five youth of color. Uh, they were wrongly convicted of uh, raping a a white woman in Central Park in New York City back in the late 80s. Uh, but they went to jail for several years. And then finally, uh, through the efforts of of many people who who um, were insisting on their innocence and working for it, they finally were exonerated and uh, of all crimes related to it. But the way this documentary does it, man, it is so powerful, so powerful that it's hard to watch sometimes. And I just thought, man, we needed this. I got to I got to put their names out here, man. I got to say their names. We talking about Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae. Yusef Salam and Corey Wise. I'm gonna tell you, this this is the most haunting thing I've watched all year. It's the most haunting thing I've watched in a long time, and it's not a horror, you know, a horror show. It's not a horror film, but for us, it is. Um, there is a part in episode four, which is the Corey Wise episode. It's the episode that got Jarrell Jerome the Emmy. And there is a scene between him and his mother Dolores, who's played by Nisi Nash. Um, and basically he asks her, he begs her to put something on his account because that's the way he's going to get protected in there because he's been beaten up, brutalized because he's in an adult prison. Um, and he basically begs, he's like, if you got, if you got $10, we got $20, any, any little thing can help. And she looks down clearly in pain and almost searches around and she just blurts out, boy, I ain't got nothing for you. Yeah. I ain't got nothing. Ouch. And it really drove home the injustice, the full injustice of mass incarceration. Mass incarceration robs the person who is incarcerated, but it also robs families. It robs the people around. It robs generations. And that's what it leaves us with. It leaves us with nothing. And so that scene is burned, is etched in my memory. Um, and also the other scenes where you see that the people who around them, their parents, their siblings, all suffer because they're not present. 
it was just brilliant. Ava DuVernay is a beast. Um, and she has continued to produce um, art for us, art on behalf of us. And so when they see us, oh my goodness, it's it's got to be, it's up there. I mean, that's, you know, that's like a number one thing. That's one of those that you could put at the top of any list for 2019. Absolutely. What you got? Okay. So my number two, I, I have to give you a story to kind of give some sort of background to what's going on here. So my number two, it's a, it really has to be accompanied with the story. So I remember I was preaching at a church and there was, it was a lot of services at this particular church. And I remember there were a couple of young men um, who I had met, you know, it's a multi-ethnic church. So a couple of black young men who I, who I had met around my age, you know, it dapped them up, you know, said what's up to them, you know, talk to them, et cetera. And I remember being excited because they were going to be leading worship that day. They were part of a small team that was going to be leading worship. And so I was like, bet this is going to be dope. And then when they got up, and this is no critique of them. This is no critique of them. I want you to hear me. But when they got up, they started singing and they started, they sounded like CCM artists. They didn't Uh, sound like how they looked, right? They didn't sound native to their culture. And I remember sitting back and I looked at Malina and I looked back and I, you know, I was worshiping and doing all that. But then I talked to her later on. I was like, isn't it crazy that every single time we get up, we're robbed of something? And it's nothing wrong. If that's how you sound, that's how you sound. But it was like, it doesn't make sense to me. Why would you sound this way? Who told you you had to sound this way? Who told you you had to sing these songs? And and so that leads me into my number two, which is an album. It's an album called Hear Us From Heaven by All Nations Worship Assembly in Atlanta. The reason I picked this album is because the lead vocalist, Chandler Moore, sounds so different from anything you would expect him to sound, anything you would expect from worship albums. Now, this is a Black church, but still the same thing at the same time. He sounds totally different. He sounds himself. It doesn't sound like he's modulating. It doesn't sound like, I mean, he does some CCM songs. They do some CCM songs. They do some, you know, popular songs. They do some some older songs. And it sounds so refreshing and it sounds so black and it sounds so authentic to his mm. soul. Yeah. That it's it's a tone. His tone alone as a black man cuts through any sort of colonization. You know, that's the power of worship. That's the power of art. It being ourselves, it cuts through the powers of white supremacy. And it just really, I remember hearing it. I was like, yo, who is this? I was like, I've never heard anybody sing like that. And that's the power of us, the power of being individuals, the power of being unique. We don't have to sound like they do. We don't have to sing like they do. We can sing like us. We can sing like how God created us and there's power in that. So Hear Us From Heaven by All Nations Worship Assembly in Atlanta. That's that's my number two, man. We're going to have to get a clip of them and put that on the intro to the to the podcast or something. That sounds I amazing. Mean, powerful. Like that. just the way he sings. I mean, the the heft in his voice. It's not, it's just not your standard typical voice. Yeah. And I love that. I love that. And we just applaud so many white singers. We applaud so many white vocalists for how unique they sound, you know, according to whatever the culture says, but then when 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 black people come in and they and they put their own spin on it and they worship God in their way or they sing just in whatever artistic space in their own way, you know, we don't acknowledge that. So I'm going to give Chandler Moore and All Nations Worship Assembly in Atlanta some love. That's good. That's good, man. Um, All right. What about you? Number two. The 1619 Project 
Oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> Not on my list, but still, it's all love. It's it's an honorable mention. Yeah. So shout out to uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, an investigative reporter for the New York Times Magazine, and all of the many talented artists, historians, activists that she pulled together for this project. Of course, 1619 is the date when 20 and odd Negroes were forcibly brought to the coast of colonial Virginia by Europeans. It is one of the landmarks that uh, marks historically for when race-based chattel slavery uh, began or was put into motion. And so the 1619 Project um, came out in 2019, so on the 400-year anniversary of this event. And it challenged us as Americans and really just as readers, no matter where you are, to think about the nation's true founding as 1619 and not 1776 and the Declaration of Independence and all of that. So this this was a critical project, right? Because the framing is so important. When you begin the U.S.'s historical and political and social foundations with its most notorious practice, an institution that even though it was abolished, and by the way, it took our bloodiest war yet, to abolish slavery. Come on, tell them, tell them. Continues to have reverberations on into the present day. And so to me, what the project does is it clears away this idea of a, a triumphalist American narrative that there were these noble rebels who um, threw off the, the yoke of uh, British imperialism and British rule and by their own bootstraps, ingenuity and, and, this dream of democracy formed the wealthiest, most powerful nation on the planet, right? Like that is that is one side or one way to think about the history. Yeah, yeah. But when you think about history from below, history from the margins, history uh, from the oppressed, mm-hmm. it becomes mm-hmm. a very different story. And of course, there are a lot of people who didn't like it. <laughs> um they there's even even now as we record there's yeah. this ongoing sort of back and forth with people who are critiquing the project not really fairly right like it's not so much about the historical facts or data it's about the the ideological bent of uh you know a project like 1619 right. project right. and a project that other people are trying to do which saying oh no you know the the founders did something remarkable and uh that's not the whole story of america the story of slavery and so just even for that debate it's it's really important in our society to force us to think about uh memory and how we formulate memory yeah it's such a great project i have to actually shout out one of our listeners jane she actually hooked me up um, with obviously Jane's friends with a lot of us in, you know, PTM, True Stable Circles. But shout out to Jane. She actually hooked me up with a, a, a actual paper copy of 1619 because she lives in New York. So shout out to our listeners. Uh, man, it's it's searing. It's haunting. It's well thought out. And the reactions are predictable, but actually encouraging because it proves that truth is being told. So. All right, let me, uh, I'll give you my number three here. Um, Speaking of listeners, speaking of listeners giving us something, I actually was not able to go to uh, the Just Gospel Conference this year with you guys. Um, So Jamar was there, you know, a lot of the team members were there, a lot of our friends were there, and I was not able to go. But one of our listeners, a guy named Charles, who I actually met at Just Gospel previously, 
um, he gave me a book and he sent it through Aaron James. And so Charles, shout out to you because my number three is the book God in the Ghetto by William A. Jones Jr. I believe this book was actually written, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in 1965. I don't know if you can get it anywhere. I have absolutely no idea how Charles found it. Um, But this book is absolutely fascinating. And basically, William A. Jones Jr., he was a civil rights leader. William A. Jones Jr. basically wrote this from the perspective, it's a theological perspective of what God is doing in the ghetto and why the ghetto exists to begin with. And he talks about social, historical, cultural factors, obviously theological factors. Uh, It is unashamedly Black. Even in the first few pages, I'm like, whoa, you know, you wrote this in the 60s, 70s. I mean, this would be radical or perceived as radical in 2019 or 2020. Um, and it gives so many different perspectives. And obviously, as a pastor, as a preacher, at, at the back of the book, he has a collection of sermons as well that he's done that are Black-centered, also gospel-centered as well. Phenomenal. It's, it's just a great book. And it's helped me. It's added something to my lexicon to hear that people were thinking about the same things. And this is the idea. So when, whenever people tell you, as they are prone to do, there's a slippery slope. And now, all of a sudden, people are now just talking about justice and just talking about social justice and just talking about all these things. It's a lie. It's deflection. They were talking about these things for decades prior to us even being born. Uh, These are conversations that go back for centuries, as Jamar has just pointed out, and he can continue to point out. I'm telling you, this is such a phenomenal book. And I'm so sorry because I don't think you can get it anywhere. That was right. what I was going to say. Sorry, sorry to this, this man. Great sorry to this man. Who's <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know where you can get it. I don't think you can get that it on great. Amazon. I mean, you'd have to pay top dollar to get it. It's one of those things. So shout out to Charles, man. Check your local library. He, he, yeah, yeah, probably at the library. Yes. But he hooked me up, man. And he's actually given me some other books too, some Manuel Scott books, some other, other things. Um, as well. So shout out to I him. See, I, see. I got the plug, man. I got the plug. That's why I ain't mentioned his last name. I was going to say, ain't, no, I ain't, ain't nobody uh-uh. giving me no I ain't mentioned his last name because you, you the book plug on the history side, but I'm going to stay on the black church <laughs> side, okay? That's good. That's good. All um, right. What's your number four, man? Okay. Uh, to sort of lighten it up a little bit, celebrate black excellence and especially black girl magic, Simone Biles. Okay. Bad, bad. Okay. The gymnast, now celebrity, she's got a, over a million followers on Twitter. She Hold is, on, pause, pause, pause. Yes. The greatest gymnast I'm in America. I'm getting to that. Okay, <laughs> okay, I'm, just, I'm just making it clear. All right, I'll put some respect. I'm going to build it up. I'm building the case here. So, um, yeah, absolutely one of the greatest living athletes we have right now and will go down in the history books because in 2019, she won her 25th career world medal, becoming the most decorated gymnast of all time in in the world championships history. She's a four-time Olympic champion. She has 19 gold medals. She even has several moves named after her because she invented them or she's the first one to actually execute them in competition. So you want to talk about blazing trails and excellence, right? It's not only that she's winning, she's changed the game. She's changed the landscape. She's invented in new moves and put them into competition and they weren't there before. 
before. And she's done masterfully in terms of building a platform. Um, she's, she's a businesswoman. She's a great mind in addition to a great athlete. And not only that, her character was put on display as in this Me Too era and all of these horrific uh, incidents of sexual abuse and assault were coming out in the world of gymnastics. She came out with her own story. She's advocating for women. She's advocating for justice. And so her excellence goes far beyond the mat. But it's just it's just one of those things that, you know, years from now, we'll look back and just be like, what an era. And I just want to stop and savor the moment and recognize uh, the black girl magic of Simone Biles. Man, that's an obvious one. It's something I didn't even really think about. But man, she is incredible. And, you know, that's interesting because really her greatness is really casual now. (laughs) It's become so normal and become so normative that people expect her to be incredible. They expect her to win. They expect her to dominate. And, you know, in some ways they kind of use it as a way of diminishing her greatness and diminishing what she's capable of. And, you know, it's it's really interesting every time, you know, there are the, the Olympics and every time there are Black gymnasts who are out there or Black athletes, people really highlight, especially in gymnastics, the other athletes who are unexpected, but not the athletes who are expected to dominate. Mm-hmm. And they're like, wow, a rising star. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, okay, sure. I mean, you know, but also this person has been, you know, dominating for years and probably going to go down as the greatest gymnast ever, period. So, I mean, I think that might be worth mentioning, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, and they're like, oh, what more can you say? Oh, there's plenty more you could say. So <laughs> I'm so glad you brought attention to Simone Biles because she is phenomenal. That's true black girl magic right there. Come bro. on the show, sis. We'd love to talk to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, we would love to. Yeah, come through. That would be, be awesome. Just hearing her work ethic, her oh, discipline, I all that she's been through. That. All right, so I got a curveball for you, and I was going to save this for later, but this, my my number four cultural artifact is actually a person, and his name, I know I'm going to butcher it. I'm so sorry, but it's Anand Girdadis. It's a guy named Anand Girdadis. Now, I heard about Anand through a show on Netflix called The Patriot Act, and so The Patriot Act with Hassan Minhaj is basically a comedy news show, a la kind of like The Daily Show. But it's aimed at educating people on current hot-button issues. And so they were talking about this idea of billionaires. And so they brought Anand on, and he compared billionaires, well, him and Hassan together basically compared billionaires and what they do as far as the charity work and all these other things as far as philanthropy to Batman. They compared it to Bruce Wayne creating all these problems And then the Cape Crusader putting on his cape and his suit at night to go out and fix the same problems he created. And so I was like, man, who is this guy? This guy is just, I mean, he has a really interesting look. Like the way he talks is so captivating. And so I kept following his work and he has a book out called Winners Take All. And I haven't finished the book. So I was going to put the book on, but I was like, man, I haven't finished the book yet. But it's basically about how billionaires doing charity and philanthropy isn't what we think it is. It's actually what he calls reputation laundry for them. And it doesn't really help us in ways that we think it helps us. As a matter of fact, it probably distracts us from the true ways in which billionaires could make a difference. So I'm like, man, this is captivating. And so I'm looking and I see he went to Google and and said the same thing. I mean, he's stood toe-to-toe with billionaires and other people. I'm like, what is so fascinating about this? What is so fascinating about this idea that 
the charity and the philanthropy that billionaires are doing, while good in and of itself, is actually counterproductive and it's actually a distraction from the ways in which they propagate systems of oppression, injustice, and inequality. I was like, what is so fascinating about, about this? And then I was like, you know what? It just hit me one day while I was driving. I was like, well, this is the same thing white evangelicals do. Whoa. I was like, wow. So they do this same reputation laundry. They ha- they pass out a couple of scholarships to underprivileged black kids. Jeez. They give us they they give they do drive-by outreaches in the hood. They 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 bring in some of the kids from the hood into their youth group. They go and they serve and they do the good things, but they don't dismantle the systems of white supremacy that create the distance and the divide from the black community to begin with. So yeah, sure, you give a couple of scholarships out, but then you don't take reparations from the fact that you you advance your institution or your seminary from slavery by slaveholders. You don't take any of that money and pour it back into a black denomination or pour it back into a black church. You don't have any plans for doing that. Dang. And so I'm like, oh, y'all do the same reputation laundry that Anand is talking about with the billionaires. How interesting is it? That the ones in power on in the kingdom of God, quote unquote, in the church, in the American church system, act just like the ones in power in our culture. That is so interesting to me. And so I was like, Anand, you on my list because you gave me a way of interpreting this that I hadn't had before. I knew it, but you put words to it. Thank you for doing that. So my number four is Anand. This man went deep. He said, that's the same thing white evangelicals do. I did not see that one coming, but you're absolutely right. The exact same thing. The exact same thing. They hoard the power and then they come in heroically. Racism is wrong. Well, of course it is. Duh. (laughs) What what, what do you want? What do you want? A cookie? What do you want? Now we we to clap for you. Now we just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not going to supplant you're not going to subvert the systems of white supremacy that your church is okay 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 i mean come on man like i just i've I've seen it too much man somebody dies unarmed black man dies in our community all the multi-ethnic all the guys who are like man racism is just such a problem they're just they go ghost like we don't even see them they don't say nothing they don't talk about nothing i'm like man what, what what good is what good is your little charity what good is your dimes toward you know, put in the bank, which basically makes you look better by saying, I just abhor racism. I abhor white supremacy. Do something about it. Otherwise, that stuff is reputation laundry, man. So anyway, I could go on for days on that, but that's my number four, man. Well, that cues it up perfectly for my next one. It was... Okay, hold on. Before we get to your next one, before we get to your next one, I'm so sorry, y'all. We have got to take a break. We got to pay the bill. We got to pay the bills. Otherwise, they're going to cut us off. They're going to cut us off the air. So hang on one second. We'll be right back on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. We want to be difference makers. But maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. 
He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022 and use promo code 12022. That's O-N-E 2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping. And we are back. Thank you guys so much for bearing with us as we had a brief commercial break for our sponsors. Thank you again to our sponsors for making Pass the Mic possible. Okay, Jamar, I cut you off mid-thought. I do not want to miss your next one. What is, I guess we're on number five, right? That we're sounds number right. Five? That sounds right. <laughs> okay, what is your number so five? So as you were talking about white evangelicals, it dovetails perfectly with my next cultural artifact, which is the Christianity Today article entitled, Trump Should Be Removed from Office, written by- mm. Okay, this yeah, is yeah, interesting. Yeah, written by Mark Galley, their- um, editor-in-chief who who uh, just recently retired. So Christianity Today was founded half a century ago in conjunction with Billy Graham. It has been um, in many ways the sort of evangelical masthead publication for decades now. And whether somebody is a regular reader or not, it is firmly ensconced in evangelical culture and evangelical identity. And typically, they either sort of stay out of commenting on politics much, or if they do, it's from a sort of center-right perspective. This article really wasn't different in in that sort of center-right outlook, but it was different because we all remember the infamous 81% of white evangelicals who voted Uh, pulling the lever for Trump. And so for years now, during this presidency and even um, during the the candidacy of the current president, people are saying, how can evangelicals support this man? How can people say that their four family values support an adulterer and a womanizer? How can people who say that they support decency in office support someone who lies as an, as his native language, who uh, slanders people, who 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 is just in all sorts of ways not an admirable figure or a good leader. And so that's been the question. But so far, evangelicals, white evangelicals have been Trump's most consistent and vocal supporters. He even has an evangelical cabinet, which John Fia labels court evangelicals. I think that's a very apt label. So this article comes very along good. Yep. In de- on December 19th of 2019, so the very end of the year. And it's right there in the title, Trump should be removed from office. And the article by, again, Mark Galley goes on to say, you know, the typical CT approach is to stay above the fray and allow Christians with different political convictions to make their arguments in the public square. And they just they just want to be a host to the political spectrum. And then it says, that said, we do feel it necessary from time to time to make our own opinions on political matters clear. And then it basically says that Trump is unfit for office in in various ways. Now, I have all kinds of caveats mm-hmm. <laughs> with this article, all kinds of sure. concerns. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I covered this in um, an episode of Footnotes. If you want, you can go back and listen to that for my full and complete thoughts. But here's why it made the cultural artifacts list is because it caused such a stir. I remember the day it came out and and like my eyebrows raising because I'm like, this is big 
for this outlet. It's not big for us, right? Like we've been saying it since before mm-hmm. he was elected, mm-hmm. but it was big for this outlet and it caused such a stir. It shut down their website. There was so much traffic on this article that the website crashed. All kinds of other secular outlets and national news outlets picked it up from the New York Times to the Atlantic to to all other kinds of places. Mark Galley shows up on NPR and CNN and all of these things to comment more on it. And the reason why it's so important is because it shows a chink in the armor of this heretofore monolithic white evangelical support of Trump. Now people have to say, some evangelicals or most white evangelicals, whereas before all they said was white evangelicals. So that's why it made my list. Yeah, man, it's it's um, it was a moment, you know, and I definitely have those, you know, internal kind of conflicts personally, which you talk about so well on footnotes um, of, you know, what is the nature of how we talk about this? What is the nature of how we cover this? And what is the nature of how this gets covered versus, say, the AME Church or, you know, others who have done this kind of since day one, and, you know, when it comes to the inauguration and the implementation of Donald Trump as president. But we cannot deny that it had a massive uh, influence on people. It, it was a moment. It was a moment of great disruption. And it was a moment where the system was challenged. And my perspective is even even one degree turn. Like, man, this isn't going to convince these people. It's like, well, I, I don't know if it is or it isn't, but this is right nonetheless. You know, it's not about the pragmatics of it. It's right nonetheless. Is it late? Yes. I will say that. I do believe it is late. Um, I do believe that that clarity, that clear denunciation is a little bit late. Um, but I would say that it, it's 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 not for cancellation, not for boycott purposes, or not to dismiss the fact that they have said certain things before. Um, so I do I do respect that. We have a lot of friends at CT. Um, and so I do respect that. And I hope it just, it's a trend. I hope it starts something that continues um, to allow white evangelicals, gives them the boldness, the courage to speak out. Um, it, it, it may not be the greatest thing ever, but it is important and we need to recognize it. Um, and we hope it changes something. Absolutely. Well, that was the first half of our 2019 Cultural Artifacts list. You'll have to tune in next week to get the second half of this amazing list. And trust me, there are some items you do not want to miss. Once again, if you want to join us this week in Houston for the kickoff episode of the 2020 Pass the Mic season in Houston, Texas, you can go to PassTheMicLive.com. That is, again, this Friday, January 17th at 6 o'clock p.m., in Houston, Texas at City of Refuge. Again, go to PastorMikeLive.com to get your tickets. But otherwise, we will see you next week right here on Pass the Mic.